Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hawaii Kai Church, and thank you for joining us in worship. Especially if you are new or visiting, we would love to meet you. And so uh, please come and introduce yourself to me or one of the elders after service is over. And whether you are new or not, uh, please uh, make use of Sunday mornings to come and speak with any of your pastors and elders with any questions you may have, uh, comments, concerns, and needs. And we will do our best to help you in whatever way that we can help you with. Now, at this time, I invite you to take out your Bible or Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to the book of Luke. And we are in Luke chapter 19 and verse 28 as we continue our study through Luke. Luke chapter 19 verses 28 through 40 is our passage today. And that passage can be found on page 878. If you are using a church Bible, page 878. Luke chapter 19 and verse 28 Before we look at our text together, would you please join me in prayer? Uh, Father, we thank you for this time of worship, and and we ask that you, by the power of the Holy Spirit and and through the preaching of your word, that you would make uh, Jesus Christ everything to us. Uh, there, There are so many things that so many of us are going through now that might distract us from his glory, and I pray, God, that you would focus our minds, our hearts, our attention on your son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We have in our passage this morning uh, Jesus' final entrance into Jerusalem, otherwise known as Palm Sunday, where the king rides into the city for the very last week of his life uh, in a coronation of sorts. But it is like the rest of his life that Jesus' royal entrance into the royal city uh, presents for us a paradox containing what seems to be conflicting things Uh, and yet occurring together, which is actually quite characteristic of his incarnation as a whole. In this entry into Jerusalem, we have explicit royalty, and and yet with it, this utter humility. We see deity, and that married to humanity. We witness triumph, and yet at the same time, uh, impending doom. And all of this results in a declaration of worship, a worship that the king is worthy of a worship which is due to him whether people are willing to recognize it or not. You know, worship at the end of the day is really our highest calling in this life and in the next one. And whether uh, we are willing to admit it or not, we are all currently worshiping something. We're created to do that, to stand in awe of something else. And we will either stand in awe of Jesus Christ or we will, uh, in error, stand in awe of other things and chase after them instead. And it is that the more we understand the person and work of Jesus within our hearts, the more we will feel impelled to worship him with the whole of our lives. And the less that we understand the person and work of Jesus, the less we're going to feel impelled to worship him and therefore turn to other things. And this passage, I think, is intended for us uh, with every detail of this final week so that we might behold our king and praise him for who he is and what he does and give ourselves more and more to him. And so in this passage, we find the king entering into Jerusalem and we witness there this paradox of conflicting things found together within him, which fuels our view of him and thus our worship to him. We read in verse 28, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. 
If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. Jesus here exhibits a perfect foreknowledge, which is characteristic only of God. And yet at the same time, he declares need. The Lord has need of it. Need a word which is characteristic of creature more than it is of creator. And so we have the king's authority overall, and yet at the same time, we see him in need of something small. Both are true in Jesus. First, his perfect foreknowledge and authority over all things. You know, Jesus could have uh, just walked into Jerusalem. It's not that far. You, you walk down the hill, and then you walk up the hill. And I don't think that we have any, any other instance in the Bible where Jesus is trying to ride anything. Uh, he's always instead walking. But here he sends a couple of disciples in front of him to procure an animal for him. Now, why spend seven verses describing the way that this young donkey is procured? I mean, Luke and the other gospel writers, they could have just said, Jesus took a colt and rode a colt into Jerusalem, and we wouldn't have asked any questions. But they each instead are very explicit about the details surrounding this animal. And Jesus' knowledge of what is in the next village is so accurate that some commentators think that this is previously set up that he must have arranged prior to this moment in agreement with the cult's owners with this kind of secret passcode, the Lord has need of it, so that they would have the signal to release the animal. But there's literally nothing in this text that alludes to any kind of prearranged agreement at all. But people think that because of how flawlessly accurate Jesus' knowledge is of what is ahead and what these two will find and how they will get this animal and its release from its owners without any kind of resistance. But the dilemma is, is that it's just too precise for it to occur so simply like this. And that's entirely true. None of this happens by chance. And, and it's not like a cold is invaluable. Wealth in this day and age was often measured by the amount of livestock one had. You don't just give away a colt and send out an animal with this kind of value. But that's precisely the point of the circumstances so explicitly detailed over these seven verses surrounding Jesus' entry as king into Jerusalem, that he really is king of all. Uh, Jesus is utterly aware of everything that is ahead, and not only is he aware of it as if he knows the end of a book not written by him. No, he's utterly aware of everything that is ahead, for he is the author of it. And he has authority and is in complete control over his environment as God himself. Why is this so precise, this knowledge? Because Jesus Christ is truly Lord of all. And you can imagine these disciples' response when they find everything exactly like he told them that they would find it. I mean, who is this Jesus? And so often the gospel writers lead you to this conclusion, uh, not explicitly by outright saying it, but implicitly, that as we read account after account, we are gently being led to this realization of who Jesus truly is as the Son of God and as God himself. He knows everything about what is going on. He knows everything about everything within each of us, every single uh, detail, and, and this helps us to understand his love for us. He, he knows exactly what is going to occur in Jerusalem, and again, not as the ending of a book not written by him, uh, 
but as the author and the perfecter of our faith. And, and he's going there to die for the sins of me and the sins of you who believe. He's, he's going there eyes wide open with full and detailed knowledge of the precise sufferings that he will endure on our behalf. He doesn't have this luxury of ignorance. Like when you try and distract a baby from shots at the doctor so that the nurse can quickly stick it in the thigh while you're singing them a song or something. They feel the pain before they even know it. No, he knows everything that is coming. He has full anticipation of it prior to it, and yet he has still set his face towards it and is even procuring the means by which to endure it. And this is where we begin to understand the kind of love that the Son of God has for his people. And so Jesus Christ has dominion and therefore perfect knowledge of all things, and especially in this final week of his life, for he is the Lord and he is the King of all. But paradoxically, the text is also telling us that he has need. The Lord has need of it. It's a very loaded sentence. Jesus, the king of all, is declaring need of even something so insignificant like a young colt. He is God, creator, king, and yet he's very human and creature alike, needy. That the Son of God asks for anything at all is remarkable in and of itself. And yet this has been characteristic of his time on earth. Asleep in a boat as if God needs to sleep. Uh, hungry as if God needs to eat. The creator of all things and yet the son of man has no place to lay his head. In Luke chapter 20, the next chapter, he even has to ask somebody for a coin to make a point. He has to ask for that coin because he doesn't have one in his own pocket. I mean, what in the world? Sovereign power overall, whereas foreknowledge is perfect to the utter detail, authoritative over the human art, where he can release a valuable animal to two strangers, and yet this will be the first time Jesus is even getting a ride, because he normally has to walk everywhere on his own two feet. And isn't this paradox what we see all over the New Testament in, in passages like what Pastor Dave just read about Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant? I mean, how can you say God, nothing, form of the servant within the same sentence? Well, this is Jesus volitionally making himself nothing as God for us. And here it is that the theme is continued. We have the king in so much need that he must ride on a borrowed colt for his own coronation because he doesn't really even own a thing. And yet he owns everything. The psalmist tells us in chapter 50, verse 10, for every beast in the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and all that fills it. It's all his. We can go to the New Testament as well. Colossians 1, 16 tells us that all things were created through him and for him. It's all his. He made it. It's for his purposes. It's for his glory. And yet he still speaks of his need for it, even something as insignificant as a donkey. I mean, this is the incarnation. This is God becoming humanity. Truly divine and yet truly human. Listen to uh, Alexander McLaren. Note the remarkable blending of dignity and poverty. He is a king, but he has to borrow. Though he was rich for our sakes, he became poor. This is at the very heart of the gospel, this understanding of Jesus Christ, which fuels our worship of him. And worship is not merely singing songs. Worship is not synonymous for music. 
Worship is, is life. Whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. And, and this worshipful mindset should regulate our understanding of our own possessions as well, or what we like to call what we own and what we think is ours. The Lord is Lord of all, and yet in his sovereign goodness, he desires to make use of what he gives to us, talents, uh, possessions, gifting, uh, capital, uh, etc., etc. He desires for us to make use of what he gives to us for the sake of the kingdom. And I think as we spend our time and our efforts and our money, uh, we should always be asking the question, does the Lord have need of this? Does the Lord have need of this hour? Does the Lord have need of this day? Does the Lord have need of this effort that I'm putting into this venture or that one? As we invest, does the Lord have need of these finances elsewhere? I mean, even the kids in our households, does the Lord have need of this one? And when we think about the world and the gospel, the answer is usually yes, isn't it? But this is the craziest thing. It's all his to begin with. He's the owner, he's the creator, and yet asking as if he has need to give us the opportunity to be useful in his hands. I mean, do you think that the people who gave up this cold are regretting that they gave it up right about now? No, they'd give a thousand away if even one of them could be used to bring the king into Jerusalem on the final week of his life to carry the Savior before the cross is going to carry him for the sins of the world. You, you know, when we give up what is ours, we're really only giving what is back to him now, aren't we? And when we give it up for the Lord's need, there will never ever be any kind of regret for it when all is said and done. When you give your time, your effort, your giftings, your, your capital, your kids, your heart, your soul, your blood, your sweat, your tears, there will never, ever be regret for it when all is said and done. Jesus has a right to it all. He has a claim upon it all, and yet he gives all what is currently under a stewardship entrusted to us. You know, brothers and sisters, one thing to say, Jesus is our King, Savior, and Lord. It is completely another thing to actually live like it. And it is the latter that is true worship. And so we have Lord overall, and we have the Lord in need of something small. We have the king authoritative, proven in perfect foreknowledge of everything. And we have the king in humility, asking for even a little thing. The, the paradox, again, is meant to fuel our praise of him. Verse 35, we continue. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Here we have a scene of a royal and yet humble king who receives the worship of his people, who are, who are submitting to him and saying true things about him, and yet those things aren't really actualized in their hearts. We have this king of great dignity and utter humility, and we have his followers worshiping in emotion with their lips, and yet their hearts are not going to be with them by the end of this week. Uh, this is a strange scene of conflicting things. First, royalty and humility. You know, normally the, the picture of a king triumphant is imagined uh, after the defeat of his enemies or striding, in, striding into war against them. 
like a conqueror on a white horse, fully armed for battle. And we see this exact image in Revelation 19:11. A rider on a white horse, straight from heaven, judging in righteousness, making war, eyes of flame of fire. On his head are many diadems, crowns, and jewels, and there are armies of heaven following him on their white horses as well. And that scene will truly occur, but it is yet future. But that kind of image is what people more naturally think of when they think of a victorious king. The text that pictures this coronation comes from Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteousness and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And within these two passages, these two texts, we have these kind of twin images. One of war and victory, and the other of humble royalty. Both horse and donkey are royal. King David rode a mule. Solomon's son rode a donkey at his own coronation in 1 Kings chapter 1. The kind of animal is not where the humility lies. The animal itself is not degrading in any way. But the purpose of each writing is entirely different. The God of heaven should have sent a son to wage war against the sinful world, to judge it in righteousness with eyes of flame of fire and the armies of heaven behind him. I mean, look at humanity. We fight each other. We rebel against everything about God. Uh, we're violent, bullies, human trafficking, murderers, looters. One of society's big issues is literally not enough jail space. And others can be so arrogant that they look at the sins of the world and scoff. I would never do anything like that while they harbor the secret stuff and the addictions within the heart entirely in denial of it. Uh, and there's no refuting that humanity as a whole has turned its back upon our Creator, our God, and our Lord. And yet the Son of God has two visitations and not only this one. The first is not on a white horse to wage war, although he would be entirely justified to do just that. But the first is on this young colt with peace as his mission. And the image is such, I mean, I don't know if you've ever tried to ride a donkey or a horse that has never been ridden before. Or if you just tried to ride an untamed one. I once rode a large black and white cow print horse named Tuxedo who was not tame and didn't respond to any of my commands, and I will never forget that day for the rest of my life. I don't know that peaceful is the best adjective for it, and that is all untamed animals, and especially the infants, if you ever see how crazy a puppy can get before it falls asleep and whatnot. And yet we see again this authority of Jesus that even an untamed beast, a normally petulant young animal, offers its back willing and without fight to the king of all. Peace as the king rides in on a young colt that no one has ever written. Let me read you a quote by Octavius Winslow. I just saw this on Tim Challey's website that encapsulates the point that I'm trying to make here. He says, So completely was Jesus bent upon saving sinners by the sacrifice of himself, he created the tree upon which he was to die and nurtured from infancy the men who were to nail him to the accursed wood. I mean, do you hear that? He made the tree that would be used to become his cross. He sustained and gave life to the ones who would demand his. 
He is just as powerful on this donkey as he will be when he comes again on the white horse. But he uses all of that power to make peace between God and humanity. I mean, when we see this king coming into Jerusalem like this on an untamed animal in humility, this is not untriumphal as some commentators want to say. This is more triumphal than anything I have ever seen in all of creation. And yet it is humble in that our king is riding into Jerusalem to die for us and to again hang on a tree that he created and be rejected by a people whom he nursed from infancy to make peace. And in doing so, with absolute power, he is submitting himself to death for us, this God of life. This is the most triumphal entry that could ever be imagined. And yet, it is a paradox of sorts that is meant to lead us to worship. The more we dissect the details of it, that this first visitation precedes the next one, and that the young colt coming before the white horse, that in and of itself is a gift of amazing grace. And so we have here royalty and humility. But look also now at the worship of his people. They're submitting to him. They're saying true things about him. And yet it's not really actualized within their hearts. They're worshiping with their bodies, their mouths. But by the end of the week, they're going to be nowhere to be found. You know, laying one garments down is an image of submission, 2 Kings 9, 13, 2 Kings 9, 13. Uh, they did that for King Jehu uh, when he was anointed and proclaimed king. It, it was a symbol as if to declare, we place ourselves under your authority and our cloaks are, are your royal red carpet of sorts. And you can imagine uh, this intimacy within this moment as they create this saddle with their own jackets so that the king will not ride bareback, and then they put Jesus on it. And then the crowd of his followers starts to cry out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That first line comes from Psalm 118, 26, which is a messianic psalm. When everyone would go on their pilgrimage once a year to Jerusalem, they would sing these psalms from memory. And they would sing once a year uh, one of these psalms of ascents. I mean, this is worship with a mouth. This is worth it with the hands, with the cloaks. And there's this genuine emotion here and this recognition of everything that Jesus had done mightily. The book of Luke has been filled with them thus far. The blind see, the dead are raised, uh, the paralytic can walk, the leper made new, the tax collector, even the chief of them, he repents. The harlot, new life. The poor, the marginalized, being brought near, even foreigners, Gentiles, they can come close to him. Uh, it's utterly appropriate to worship when we start to catalog, catalog Jesus' mighty deeds. Matthew Henry says, Christ's triumphs are the matter of his disciples' praises. Of course, it's appropriate to worship with our lips when we witness the mighty works of God and to do so with a loud voice, even if you can't keep a note. But it is, by the end of the week, there's going to be not a single one of these followers singing, not even one. Alexander McLaren, he says, high-wrought emotions. Emotion is a poor substitute for steady conviction. High-wrought emotion is a poor substitute for steady conviction. And Jesus' followers, uh, even the 12, even the inner circle of the 12, are all going to cower in the coming days. And rather than sing, 
the most prominent one of them all is going to deny that he even knows Jesus at all. Worthy of worship and yet pretty empty worship. Now here's the thing. Jesus knows all of this. Every single detail. I mean, he tells Peter to his face, you're going to deny me not once, not twice, but three times. And he's going to do so in front of an unfrightening servant girl. And yet the incomplete and imperfect worship of his followers, he still accepts. And he still rides into Jerusalem to pay for their sins with his own life. I mean, you would think that Jesus would say when he's hearing it, shh, you liars, this is fake, you flakers. You would think that Jesus would only receive perfect worship. But then we could never worship him ever in this life now, could we? And we realize more, therefore, of this love and grace of God that he receives our worship still, however tainted it is. I mean, this is our king. This is our savior. This is our Lord, brothers and sisters. I mean, don't you more and more want to worship him with everything that is within you? Verse 39, we continue. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Not everyone wants to worship Jesus. Not even everyone wants to hear it. But that doesn't mean he isn't worthy of it. You know, the Pharisees, the thing that they hate the most is hearing Jesus' praises. And, and there are many in the world that the thing that bothers them the most, their biggest pet peeve is the fact that people love Jesus much and it has changed us. Worship him anyways. He's worthy of it. And Jesus uh, accepts that worship. He receives it. Now, side note, for those who think that Jesus never claimed to be God, right here he receives worship and doesn't rebuke those who worship him as God. No, in fact, he doubles down on it. If these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And he's God. He's stating it as a matter of fact. And what does that mean? Throughout the Bible, creation is personified and pictured as worshiping God. Here the rocks will cry out. In Isaiah 55, 12, the trees will clap and the mountains will sing. Psalm 19, 1, the heavens declare the glory of God, the sky, his handiwork. In the New Testament as well, we have in Romans 8, that creation is longing eagerly for the day of salvation, kind of straining its neck, hoping to see that moment. Even if all of humanity we're to shut our mouths and close our hearts, Jesus Christ is going to receive the worship that he is due. But isn't it better that we worship him? And if there's any moment where we should, isn't it here as we witness this uh, paradox of a coronation and behold him for who he is? You know, brothers and sisters, worship at the end of the day, it is really our highest calling in this life and in the next one. And whether we're willing to admit it or not, we're all going to worship something. We're created for it, to stand in awe of something outside of us. And we will either stand in awe of Jesus Christ or we will stand in awe of other things and chase after them instead. R.C. Sproul, we focus far too much attention on ourselves and not nearly enough on the majesty of God. Every detail of this last week is to focus our hearts, our minds on the majesty of God. I wonder what it is 
in your life that threatens to take priority over the worship of Jesus Christ? I wonder what it is in your life that squeezes it out. We've got to cast it aside, brothers and sisters. The king will have his worship, but it is best when it is from the hearts of his people. Would you please pray with me? Father, you know everything about us. Uh, everything, the good, the bad, the ugly. And Lord, we thank you for your amazing grace that knowing all of this, you send Jesus Christ to us to ride on a donkey into Jerusalem, to hang up on a cross, to pay for our sins, to rise from the grave, to defeat death, to ascend into heaven, to intercede for us, to one day come again soon for us in love, whom he calls his bride. I pray that you would impress this gospel so deep within us and lift our eyes and chins to behold the glory of Jesus Christ, that the whole of who we are would be lived and spent to worship him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.